Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Trugman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On the very first episode of Mike's Search for Meaning, we have my former coach, mentor, and teacher, Mike DeSanti. Mike is the author of New Man Emerging. He's also the owner of Authentic Self-Healing, a men's fulfillment and retreat coaching company. And lastly, he is a transformational coach and trainer and is committed to inspiring men to live lives of purpose and fulfillment. Mike wears many hats. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's a wealth of wisdom. I've learned so much from him. It's been an honor to be a client of his. I'll keep the intro short. Without further ado, let's dive into this wide-ranging, amazing conversation with Mike DeSanti. All right, Mike DeSanti, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thanks, man. I appreciate being here. I love the title, by the way. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, any good any good Victor Frankl reference is, works for me. Well, good job. Of, of course, that's exactly what the name is for. And uh, it's funny, the first way that I was introduced to you and your work was through a podcast. And having a podcast has been a dream of mine for a while because it's been so instrumental in my growth. I've listened to so many podcasts and it's, uh, it's a dream come true to have you on as a guest of the podcast, someone I've learned so much from, someone I met from a podcast to have you on my own now is really a dream come true. Oh, man, I appreciate it. I'm glad to, uh, and I'm grateful and glad to have played a, a small part in your journey. Love it. So I wanted to start, I, I said before we hit record that I was going to ask a question that you probably haven't heard before, but your brother Donnie is a coach. He's a health coach. Your brother Chris is a coach as well. I know he introduced you to gratitude training. Mm -hmm. You're, of course, a coach. I want to know what it was like at the dinner table in the DeSanti household growing up. You guys are all coaches. You're all introspective men. Tell me what it was like at the dinner table growing up. You know, it, it, that's a great question because I, I was like, well, what is he going to ask me with this anticipation? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Like if people will sometimes say like, what was in the water growing up? And, you know, what would your parents do? And like <clears throat> growing up, I, I felt as though like it's just a typical you know, family and growing up and conversation and things like that. But I, I think as I got older in my teens and 20s and we started to really like my, my brothers and I got into introspection and self-discovery and self-awareness when we were relatively young. I mean, I was 14 and my brothers were, you know, 15 and 17 and we were reading like Krishnamurti and, you know, Nisargadatta, Native American philosophy and all this. So I think as I got into my teens and twenties, I was like, no, this is interesting and unique. <laughs> and so like, yeah, they were deep, man. Th those conversations were deep. And, uh, and I think my, uh, you know, my father really wasn't around much for that. My parents had split when I was 14, but my mother, thank God, bless her soul. 
was very like uh, encouraging and nurturing of that. Cause she, I think she saw when we were young, like it brought us a lot of peace and clarity and purpose in life. And my mother really like nurtured it, even though it was a little strange and, and out of the ordinary. But mm -hmm. those conversations were, yeah, they, they got pretty deep in our, our teens and twenties. And I think it, the, the, a lot of those conversations and influences have shaped, you know, who I am and who my brothers are today. Yeah. So what's really interesting about that is that I'm comparing my own journey to that as well. And, and my upbringing was similar. I have a younger sister. My parents have been very into figuring themselves out their whole life. And our dinner table conversations were, we were always connecting and talking about feelings. And mm. I had this realization that that wasn't normal when I was at other friends' houses. And there's a big but, but me and you both still, despite that, picked careers at first that were not really connected with who we really are. Yeah. So could you tell me a little bit about your first career choice and despite the way that it sounds like you were brought up, how did you end up in that first career? Uh, that's a, you know, it's a, it's a poignant question because, you know, I look back and I'm like, oh, it makes sense now. But at the time, it didn't really make a ton of sense. And, you know, to what we were saying before is like I spent my teens and even college years uh, really in this like deep self-discovery. And so much so that, you know, I, in New Jersey in my freshman year of high school, like I lived outside, I built a hut and lived outside reading Walden and the Dow at, by firelight, you know, <laughs> you know throughout my, my teens. And like I was in this really deep discovery as a kid or as a teenager and then went to college out in Montana, really got immersed in the nature out there, loved it. But when I came home, I was offered a job in uh, corporate event planning by an uncle who I had never met, he became like a father figure to me. And growing up, you know, without a lot of money and having the lights turned off and bills being degenerate and things like that, there was a scarcity in me that I remember thinking, all right, well, let me at least go this route to get some certainty financially. And then I, I, I remember thinking like, I'll get back to what I love and what I'm passionate about once I'm financially secure. And I look back now and I know that that decision and choice was very motivated by fear and scarcity because I grew up not having money. And then here was this offer and promise of money that I remember thinking, oh, I would be foolish not to take it. So I spent a lot of my 20s, my mid 20s, mid to late 20s, traveling the world on someone else's dollar, staying in fancy hotels, you know, making money. And in my mid 20s, you know, I went after this promise. My mid 20s, I owned my own home, drove the Mercedes, was vice president of the company, and I was being groomed to take that company over. And but the reality was like I was like dying inside, like my soul was so undernourished. But externally everyone was like you you hit the jackpot you know you've you've found a dream job and and i remember like the authenticity that i really had to bury to do that job and to function that way and be that stressed out over something that was so really not purposeful for me by my late 20s i remember thinking you know 
I could see my future right now and it doesn't look well. And then I, it took me some time, but I, I mustered up the courage to, to walk away from a really fine, po promising financial future to do something that I was passionate about. But when I look back on it now, I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> it's, it's hard to, like knowing you now, it's hard to imagine that at one point you were the guy who had all the money and was driving the Mercedes and yep. maybe was speeding on the highway and looking at everyone else like, look, look what I've got, look what I've accumulated. It's, it's really hard to imagine that. I want to kind of double click a little bit on what was that you didn't bring up a rock bottom necessarily, but you said that your soul was feeling empty and that you had all the stuff that you thought you wanted. What was that like for you? And what were maybe some of the first couple of steps that you took to start figuring out what the next step was for you? There, there was a, you know, there was a, an accumulation that led up to what I would call like what you just said, like that rock bottom. And I remember, you know, I was so stressed out. And when I, when I looked at it, I was like, well, I'm stressed out and all I'm doing is making comfortable people more comfortable. And I, and I remember thinking like, I'm always on call. I'm working seven days a week on paper. It looked great. I was traveling quite a bit, but I, I wasn't really developing, you know, great relationships. I was always on the road. I, I was never around. And I remember thinking, you know, like, I, when I looked forward, like I said, when I looked ahead to my future, like I, I wasn't healthy. I was constantly stressed. I was gaining weight in my twenties. And I was like, this is trending somewhere and it's not good, <laughs> not healthy. But then what happened was I remember I, I was promised something and I had, uh, I was taking this company over from my uncle and from, from that or with that, you could say like, there's this element of like nepotism. I was uncles just giving him this company, but I was given a promise that if me and my team can pull off what was like this called this impossible event. If me and my team could pull this off for this company, I mean, the budgets were millions and millions of dollars for this, this event that was like incredibly complicated, virtually impossible. But the promise was if I could pull this off, me and my team could pull this off, no one could ever say his uncle just gave him this company. Mm -hmm. And so I, I spent months putting this event together with my team and and we pulled it off. And I remember like, oh my God, going to sleep that night going, my future was just made. And what happened was I was called out of bed at two in the morning in a, down to a hotel lobby. And someone from the, the client from the company had shown me a line item of something that was really inconsequential and tore me apart about it. And I remember thinking, going back up to my room and being like, I just pulled off the impossible and they are still miserable. Mm. And I remember flying home from the event and I had this like heart to heart with myself. And I remember thinking like, this is my future. And I could either continue down this road and just be stressed out constantly and, and give everything that I've got for ungrateful people or I could actually start becoming part of the solution. And right now I really felt at that point, I was really part of the problem. 
Mm-hmm. I remember I landed and I got home and I had a real like soul searching flight home. <laughs> that's for sure. And I remember saying that to my mother. She called me and said, how is everything? And, and I said, I, I need to make some changes. And I remember I spent the next few months and even my uncle could tell, he's like, your, your heart's not in this anymore. And I said, no, it's not. Like, I can't continue down this path that I just felt was unpurposeful, very insignificant. And I wasn't really making a, a, a positive impact on anyone's life, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was really wasting a lot of talent and a lot of skill set and a lot of passion, a lot of heart. And I, I eventually mustered up the courage to say, like, listen, if, if this is as good as it gets, which really it was, I, I fulfilled this promise. And meanwhile, I was miserable. I was like, well, if this is as good as this gets, a life of impact and purpose it's got to be better than this. Yeah. And so then I walked away, you know, and people look back and they're like, it, at the time, people thought I was crazy, mm-hmm. you know, walking away from that kind of financial future. But I remember thinking like, no, this is not what my life is designed for. So what was, what was next for you after that? You walked away, you knew you wanted more purpose. I think a lot of people can relate to that, but then they, they don't know what that next step looks like. They're just scared to kind of deal with the abyss or that initial transition period. What did, what did that look like for you? I, I, I look back on it now and I coach this a lot now where, you know, there's a lot of people that are in my, in the boat that I once was in that they would love to do something passionate or purposeful and impactful. And uh, one of the things that I, I talk about is like close the gap. Mm-hmm. shorten the abyss. So, you know, I got very clear after that, you know, rock bottom moment, but I probably didn't step away officially till about eight or 10 months after. And so what I started to do was I, I started to, like I told you, I was gaining weight. I was unhealthy. I started to reconnect to my passions of nutrition, lifestyle, holistic health and healing, nature. I started to spend a lot of time back in those things that I was passionate about. And I spent my off hours, which were limited at that time, but I spent my off hours reading and researching and diving in, like you were saying about podcasts and listening and learning. Mm -hmm. And then what I did was I really took responsibility for my own health. And then people in my office were like, you look great. What are you doing? And then I just started coaching people in my office. And then little by little, like they were getting results and they were changing their lives. And I was like, you know, this is something I can do. I was really just creating data and practicing on people that were close to me. And what I did was I just shortened the gap. I, I, I shortened the abyss. So rather than this really like dramatic leap across the Grand Canyon, I just little by little started to shorten the canyon, shorten the gap so that I could really walk across it or, or take like a, a reasonable jump across. And so what I, I really started to increase the amount of time that I, I, I spent in things that I was passionate about that were purposeful, designing a life that I really wanted. And I just prioritized that, did what I needed to do in work, but no more than that. And then little by little, it, it started to really close that gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's such a testament to just using what's right in front of you. Like it, it sounds like, I think a lot of my, like myself included, we have this tendency to think I want to reach 
whatever that number is, millions, thousands of people. And it always starts with just deeply impacting the people that are immediately around you and then creating the ripple. And yeah. that's exactly how I know that you've built your coaching business. And it's, it's really powerful as a reminder to know we all have people that we can touch around us right now if we're just willing to look and see those people. Totally. I ended, I ended up coaching people in my office, friends, parents, friends. And then now what I've really learned was, and I've spoken with you about this, is like harness your second circle. Mm -hmm. As you're working with people that you know and that know you and like you and trust you, as you're working with them and getting results, just ask them, put me in touch with people that are interested in, in what I'm up to. And you, you just, as you tap into that second circle, you could grow an entire business off of that. But we, you're absolutely accurate. People think, oh no, I've got to reach like the sixth circle and build this giant following. And I'm like, no, that's exhausting. Uh -huh. Just tap into the people that already, you know, respect you and know you, like you, trust you, and then reach into their circle mm -hmm. or let them bridge, you know, you and that second circle. It's, it's really fun to learn more about the origins of your coaching practice and like, what you're describing is kind of where I'm at now, but now I know it's evolved over the last, say, 10 years that you've been doing this. And one of the hats that you wear is a transformational trainer, which if someone's not familiar with coaching, that could just sound like window dressing. It's like fancy terms. What is a transformational trainer? Like what is, describe a little bit about the work that you do. I've, I've experienced it so powerful, but what, what is the work that you do? You know, I think I think one of the appeals right now in in personal development and self development is transformation, meaning a, a distinct shift in a person's psychology and physiology, so that they're actually on a whole new track in life. They're not just refining something; they're ultimately and legitimately transforming it. And as a transformational trainer, we're facilitators of that transformation. We're facilitators of that leap onto a whole new track. And what that entails is a, a specific and deliberate way of communicating and listening, presenting, offering. And a lot of times you know, we, we do that from stage through a, a very particular curriculum that allows the attendee to really unlock and open things up for themselves. And I think one of the biggest distinctions of, you know, a transformational trainer is that we're educating, not teaching. Mm -hmm. And teaching is, you know, a system of, I know something that you don't. And you're going to sit there and listen, and I'm going to tell you what to think. Education is, is from the root of the Greek or Latin word, educare is to call forth from within. So an educator is actually saying, I don't know anything that you don't know. And especially when it comes to you, you are brilliant. You're you, no one, uh, you know, I tell my students all the time, like when it comes to you, you're the most brilliant person, you know, and education is about helping people harness what they already know. They just suppress it, forget it, delay it, procrastinate it. But, but a, a, tr a transformational trainer is educating them. We're calling forth from within your own inner wisdom. And that's distinct. That puts the power back on you. I think teaching te you know, shows people what to think. Education shows people how to think. 
and how to think critically about their own life, about their own work, about their own, you know, uh, context in their own life as, as them, as the center of the, of the web of, of their life. Do you have a specific example of like one of the shifts that maybe you have made or that you've helped someone else experience in their life? Because I, I love, I know what you're saying and I, I know that it's so powerful to just shift the context of how we see things, but I would love to hear a specific example of one. Well, I, th I think what the, the biggest uh, value or the place to start is when we say context or environment, like everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a paradigm that they filter the world through, and it's the way they relate to themselves, to people, to life, to the world. And we pick up this worldview, this paradigm, this conditioning when we're young, and we never really question it or challenge it or interrupt it or, or test it as we get older. So we just become unconsciously reactive to our old worldview. And I think transformation in a big part of my own personal transformation was the ability to be able to see my own worldview mm -hmm. and to see where my worldview was effective and to see where my worldview and my paradigm and my context was ineffective. And that was illuminating for me. And as I went through a lot of you know self-discovery and transformation and personal work, I started to be able to see my own worldviews, to see my own filters. And a lot of, for me, for me personally, I, I noticed that a lot of my reactivity, a lot of my reflexiveness was around scarcity in finances and also in, uh, you know, trying to protect myself in relationships. Mm. And I, I started to realize like, wow, I picked so much of that up when I was young through my parents and through our, our financial dynamic, our family dynamic. And then my thirties, when I started to do a lot of this work, I was like, I'm unconsciously defaulting to scarcity and not taking risks and withholding vulnerability and authenticity. And I just started to notice like, oh my God, but that's destroying my relationships. That's destroying us, especially my intimate relationships. And I noticed like I was reacting out of financially out of scarcity and I was doing things to be liked rather than to be valued. And I, I saw, I had to really, as I, as I saw that in myself, I had to intervene and interrupt some of those old, you know, scarcity survival patterns, which a lot of those really come down to, you know, the need to look good, the need to stay comfortable, the need to stay in control and the need to be right. And I started to notice like, oh my God, I am really defaulting to, to several of these patterns. And the moment I could actually stop and pause and really see where that was getting in my way, I can make new choices. And those new choices transformed my life, especially around finances and, you know, my intimate relationships. Yeah. So I, I want to dig deeper into this is this is where I connect so much with your work. And I want to talk a lot about beliefs and what are some of the beliefs that most men particularly have or people have. But first, I want you to share the diamond covered in shit analogy that you use because it's it's what you were describing yeah this this is a, that's an analogy i tell my students all the time is you know they come into my workshops into my trainings or into my coaching and i say listen you're you're a diamond covered in shit 
And the world teaches us and conditions us to think like, you've got to go get more diamond to be complete. When really the most effective focus is to say like, wait, I'm already the diamond. I got to get rid of some of this shit that I've been covering it with. And that shit is those false narratives, those limiting belief systems, those old reflexive conditionings from past experiences and disappointments and traumas that we keep reflexing to. And as we start to just uncover the diamond and, and brush off and polish off the shit that's been covering it, we realize like that journey has been, you know, it's been me all the, this whole time. You know, and that's really that journey, the hero's journey, the, the prodigal son journey of that returning home to our own authenticity, to our own power, to our own freedom, to our own peace. It's not external. It's not, I need to go get more diamond. And once I have more diamond, I'll, I'll, I'll feel complete. That it's just, it's a false uh, promise we've been given or mm -hmm. conditioned to. Uh, and the most, like I said, the most effective focus is, hold on, let's pause and, and clear up what's covering it. Can you uh, like explain in a little more detail what the hero's journey is? It's, it's so commonly referenced and it's, it's so powerful and it's so true to so many people who go through transformation. I'd love to hear in your words, what, what is the hero's journey? You know, there's a, I mean, Joseph Campbell uh, really coined that, uh, that phrase or that, um, that expression. And I think it's it's really powerful because it's it's really a, a journey that of of growth and that growth of you know this is my starting point and the starting point is typically a call to adventure or a call to a new possibility in the unknown and there's a there's a part of us as human beings that where that is incredibly appealing you know, if you think about it, my old life was so monotonous, so routine and so unsatisfactory, like I was driven by a promise, but my soul was called to an adventure. And then what happens is, and especially part of the hero's journey, is at first the hero refuses the call or it denies the call like and it, it defaults to the hero defaults to something like comfort or security, or staying safe. But mm -hmm. then uh, what happens is typically there's a, there's a, like you said before, like there's a rock bottom moment or a, a travesty that happens in that person's life where they're like, I, I can't ignore this. I can't suppress it. I can't uh, deny it. You know, if you think, if you use like the reference of Star Wars, yep. Luke is called to adventure but he refuses the call. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, what happens is aunt and uncle, you know, die. And, and then now he, there's no way of going back. So there's a point of no return. Like the, the call gets so loud that I can't, I can't ignore it or suppress it any longer. For me, that was like that rock bottom moment that I told you about. Like I couldn't unsee it. Uh -huh. Just forget about it. Then typically, you know, the hero meets a mentor and or, or, or discovers something of this new possibility and then follows it and then goes into you know the tests the adversity the failing the messing up the messiness of <laughs> of, of growth right which is like so uncomfortable but that draw and that call to a new possibility is what has the hero keep going and then uh, eventually 
it, the, the adversity, uh, there's a breakthrough. And then that breakthrough becomes a whole new possibility. I said before, it's, a, it's the transformation psychologically and physiologically to that breakthrough of, oh my God, I see the magic trick now. And then what happens is the hero uh, goes, starts to return back home and returns back home to his, his or her own old self with new wisdom and insight mm. and experience. And so that, and then it just keeps going over and over yes. and over again throughout seasons or phases of our lives. But it's this constant return back to our authenticity, but with new wisdom, insight and experience. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was that was very uh, powerful to listen to. It, I think that so many of us feel that initial discomfort or that call to action, and then just shove it back down and stick to the life of comfort. And yeah. it's it's sad to see as as coaches, like we want to. I think that's when a lot of people come to us. They're they're at that point. They. It, they can't, like you were saying, you kind of can't unsee it anymore, but the life that you've had to this point is so comfortable. And now I want to kind of dive into your work. I think this is probably the point in the hero's journey that people are coming to you. Yeah. What are the things that most of the men that are coming to you are getting tripped up by? Like, what are their current belief systems when they work with you? And then what are the new shifts or empowering beliefs that you help them come to? I think a lot of what they crave and may not be aware of it at the moment, but like you said, like they're going through their life and their routine that's unfulfilling or, or even painful. Uh, but it's so familiar that they'll keep doing it. And that's a funny part of human beings is that we'll do what's familiar, even if familiar is unhealthy. You know, and, and eventually like pain over time, if it stays long enough, eventually we'll welcome it. And I think what happens is, is unconsciously what a lot of the men that I coach are craving are typically freedom, power, personal power or empowerment and confidence. Mm -hmm. And the call to adventure is really like them saying, like, I know if I harnessed or experienced these things, my whole life would be different. Uh -huh. And uh, and by different, I mean improved and better. And so on their own, though, they've done what's so familiar for so long that really, you know, meeting the mentor or experiencing the pain enough that they're like, something has to shift. And then that's when I usually I get people or that's when people come and knock on my doors like on my own, this isn't working. And I think that in and of itself is a challenge in our current culture, which is especially for a, a, a masculine conversation is like you, we need to figure the, all this out on our own. Yep. Like that's never going to work. There is no blueprint for life and yet success leaves clues. So we've got to follow the people that we admire, respect, or have accomplished something that we, we desire to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You know, I always say like mentors and coaches aren't luckier they're just doing something a little differently than you are so you want to find what they're doing differently and then do that and emulate it so i think for me the people that the men that mostly come to me are are men that crave confidence power and freedom in their own internal state 
and then by you know really giving them a, you know a roadmap to their own inner world and seeing you know what's covering that what are the narratives limiting beliefs and actions habits patterns like let's let's clear that up and get conscious of it and let's once we're conscious of it let's reinforce it with new committed actions into the future and into the unknown and then that's really our job as coaches i think is just to guide and aid uh our our people our clients on that hero's journey yeah through that they're like oh i get it now i see it now and i've been it all the this whole time uh-huh yeah for me one of the biggest shifts that i made in in my personal journey was that it was more just what my inner world was like i like we've talked a lot about me and you have talked a lot about organizing our inner world and my day to day has not changed all that much since i've started my kind of journey to growth mm. it's just what i'm seeing like i i was always i would walk to work every day i'd be outside i would see trees and see nature i would look up to the sky but what i was my inner world reflected was i'm dreading going to work i i was just my mind was racing at all the responsibilities i had and one of the biggest shifts i had all the things i need to control today yeah all the things i need to control all the emails that i don't want if i if i could just shut it all down and in my current world, the same things are happening. I'm still getting emails. I'm still sometimes dealing with people who are making demands that would bother me. I'm still walking outside, but I've just changed the way that I've organized my inner world. And it's now I could see the beauty of the world. Yeah. And that's one of the, I guess, most powerful things about transformation is that we don't need to like go make some massive action necessarily. All we need to do is change our it's a choice we have we have a choice to believe differently yeah. and to see differently yeah. and uh, to go back to victor frankel one of, one of his quotes is in between stimulus and response there is a choice and we we always have a choice with how we can react but yeah. i know a lot of men probably know this but haven't integrated it into mm -hmm. their life right and I know there, there's a quote that you have used that I love now, and it's the longest journey a man can make is only 14 inches, the journey from his head to his heart. Mm. How do you help people integrate the head and the heart? Men are mostly head dominant. Yeah, masculinity is mostly head dominant, femininity is mostly heart dominant. And that's an old Native American uh, saying that I've always loved, you know, that, that 14 inches from your head to your heart. And I think the, the most powerful uh, human being, you know, Native Americans, the Lakota used to call them the, a Wicca as a complete human being, someone that's integrated head and heart rather than all head or rather than all heart, which become extreme. You know, if I'm all head, I'm going to be emotionally shut down. If I'm all heart, I'm going to be emotionally volatile and not have any organization in my life. So the integration of the two is, is incredibly powerful. And to go back a little bit to what you were just saying, and I, I used to give this example years ago when I would do workshops of, remember projectors? Yes. Remember projectors when we were young, mm -hmm. right? The, the old lens projectors. Uh, what so much of us 
have been conditioned to think is like, I have a projector that's projecting on a screen this beautiful, beautiful image. Think of the most beautiful image that you could imagine. And it's projected onto the screen. And yet when I look at it, there's this black blemish mark just across the image. And what we're conditioned so often to think is, you know, spend your life getting a bucket of soap with a, with a mop or with a sponge and just scrub it until that image goes away. Because once that image goes away, once that blemish goes away, I should say, the image is actually gonna be perfect. And what we do is we spend our lives scrubbing this screen over and over and over again. And the blemish never goes away. And then one day someone says, hey, you know what? Maybe the blemish isn't on the screen. Maybe the blemish is actually on the lens. And if you just cleanse the lens, mm -hmm. the image is actually going to change. <laughs> and the image actually gets beautiful. Here's the thing. The image actually never changed. You mm -hmm. looking up at the sky, never changed. You walking to work, never changed. But what changed is the, per the perception of it, the perceiver of it. And so our inner world, our context, our worldview isn't about the image itself. It's about the reflector of the image. And that's us. And that's where the most powerful thing you were just saying is I have, a, oh my God, I have a choice in how I project onto this world. Mm -hmm. This is crazy. However, that's the place of personal power and empowerment is that I actually can change the way that I see things and that actually changes what I see. It's like Wayne Dyer's uh, saying, like, uh, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm -hmm. And this is such a common thing that I get from a lot of the men that I coach is like, they come back to me as we're working together and like, I just, I'm so much happier and more fulfilled now. And I always joke with them and I say, did you get a new wife? They're like, no. Are they, Do you have new kids? No. Do you have a new job? No, everything is actually externally the same. The image is actually still the same. It's the way they're now seeing it by cleansing the lens, you, you shift what shows up and what you see. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, I, I actually probably have less things happening in my life. Like there's less going on, there's less externals, and I'm feeling better about those externals just because of the shifts that I've made internally. So th there were two points of contact that I wanted to pull on a little bit. But first, explain content versus context. I love the way that you explain it. So context, I always say this to my students, context generates content. And context is your inner environment. And content is really the results that show up from that inner environment. So the easiest way to say it is, you know, a cactus grows in the desert. Mm -hmm. The desert is context. It's the environment. The, the cactus is content. It's the result. And it's not a chicken or the egg conversation. Without desert, there's no cactus. You need the environment, desert, to create or generate cactus. And so what most human beings do is most human beings live in the North Pole, but they really want a cactus. <laughs> and so they're like, all right, well, let me plant. I planted one. It didn't take. Let me plant two or 10 or 100 or let me just plant it harder or let me. You know what? I planted the last cactus in August. Let me plant the next one in December. I'm like, yeah, you live in the North Pole. You, you, despite your best efforts and how green your thumb is, 
you're never going to generate a cactus. <laughs> if you want a cactus, you've got to generate the environment of desert. And so human beings, we forget about our inner environment. We forget about our context and we're so over-focused on content. How do I get this result? How do I achieve this? How do I have relationships that are excellent and thriving? How do I make more money? How do I have you know, thriving health? And we were so over-focused on content, on results, on achievement, and we forget it's our inner environment, our context that actually generates the results that show up. So when we shift or bring a, a awareness and illumination to our inner context, our worldview, the way we filter ourselves and our people in the world, when we start to shed awareness on it, we start to say, oh, wait, hold on, let me shift in my inner context, belief systems and narratives and actions and behaviors and own it all. Now I have a new possibility to generate new content because I'm now creating an environment where the content I desire is congruent and can show up. Mm. So the other way of looking at that is reverse. Context generates content, but then content reveals context. Mm -hmm. So what I was saying to you before, you know, when I really started looking at it in my 30s, my late 20s and early 30s, like my content was I was terrible with money and my relationships weren't thriving. Like, but what that with self-awareness, I was saying, well, that's revealing something about my inner world that I get to look at rather than blame society or my parents or my history or blame my ex. I actually get to look at and take accountability for like what's in my inner world that's generating me to show up with scarcity or withholding or lack of vulnerability. There's something in me that needs correcting. Like I said, once you cleanse the lens, the image changes. Mm -hmm. it, so it reminds me of something that I've heard you say, if you are generous with $10, then you'll be generous with $10 million. And if you have a mind of scarcity, if you're selfish with $10 or $10 million, you're going to be selfish with 10. It, no doubt about it. It's, it, all, it's all just about the shift of context. But yeah. one of the things that comprises our inner world that you speak very eloquently to and is part of our context is the split of masculine and feminine energy. And a big realization that I had in my life was that all of us are comprised of a mixture of both and we're not static either. It is, it's very fluid. Sometimes we have more feminine energy. Sometimes we have more masculine energy. Can you talk about the distinction between what is masculine energy and what is feminine energy? Well, that's, that's one of the biggest things is that it, it's, it's energetic. And that's really important because a lot of times people attach it to gender, mm -hmm. which it's really not, you know, it's it ultimately it comes down to yin and yang. And we've seen that symbol for, you know, most of our lives and most people really don't know what it's comprised of, but it's really masculine and feminine as harmony, as harmonious. So masculine energy is far more, we were saying before, it's more mind, it's organized, it's critical thinking, it's commitment, consistency, determination, it is uh, logical, reasonable, or excuse me, reasoning, right? It's far more mind, organized. Feminine energy is far more heart, inspiration, compassion, forgiveness, nurturing, softness, spontaneity, 
right? There's a predictability about masculinity. There's a spontaneity about femininity, all right, or those energies. And what happens is, is if we, we distinguish them, and this is important, we distinguish them not to distinguish and separate them and say like, okay, now which one's better? We distinguish them so that we can integrate them and harmonize them. And so if your life is, you know, too masculine, you're going to be all mind, all reason, all logic, and you're not going to access things like trust and spontaneity and adventure and love, intimacy. And also if you're, if you're only are feminine and of no mind and everything is emotional, there's going to be times where you're like, well, I just don't feel like seeing through on my commitments and I don't really feel like you know, doing what I know I need to do. And then life becomes too chaotic. Uh, too masculine, life becomes rigid. Too feminine, life becomes chaotic. But when they're integrated, I can now look at my life and say, okay, what is this moment calling forth from me? Is it calling forth logic, mind, reason, consistency, perseverance, commitment, steadfastness? Even though I don't feel like it, I said I was committed to it. So let me stay in an integrity and stay committed and see it through and follow it through. Or is life calling forth from me your spontaneity, love, compassion, forgiveness, trust, faith? Those are all feminine energies. And there's, we, we've got to discern between the two and, and access presence to say, like, okay, well, what is this moment calling forth from me? And I always, the analogy I always give is, you know, sometimes life calls forth the hammer and sometimes life calls forth the rose. And if life is calling forth the hammer, like commitment and steadfastness and see it through and stick to and perseverance, and you're just like waving a rose around, it's not going to work. But if life is calling forth the rose and your relationship is calling forth the rose and you come in swinging a hammer, you're going to break things and you're going to be ineffective. And what I was saying before, the Lakota used to call it a Wicca man or a Wicca woman is someone that's integrated, that knows, okay, in my business here, this is time for perseverance. It's time for organization. It's time for discipline. And then when I, I could shift and in my relationship is calling forth intimacy and trust and surrender and connectedness and love and compassion and to be able to shift between the two like you said we're not static and when we're not static and we know what to bring and when we become effective do you have one that you're are you predominantly showing up with more masculine or feminine energy you know, it's, it's interesting in my, in my, if I look back on my life as a kid, I was far more feminine, uh-huh. very affectionate and open and free and loving. After my parents got divorced, I started to go more toward masculine because that was kind of the role that I played. I noticed that in my teens and in my twenties, I went too far to the masculine where a lot of me shut down based on disappointment, based on, you know, the, that such a major loss in my life. Then I, I, when I went so far to the extreme, you know, and I had in my relationships where it was like, hey, how about some emotion here? And I was just like a brick wall and my integrity and my discipline was being harmed by it. Uh, then I started to shift a little more into feminine. Now 
I would say in my marriage, um, more masculine in the finances, more feminine in the travel and the leisure. And then there's a blend of the two between us and our roles and, and how we dance between the two. So now I, I find I could default to feminine pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And I think my, my 20s and 30s were really more about integrating you know, that masculinity back into my life and, and having it be a, a harmony. So there's been, it's been different in, in my life. Do you think that's a, a common sort of timeline for the way things work out? Because at, as you're saying that, I'm thinking that is more or less exactly the way that my life has gone too. I, I probably started as a young child with a more feminine default. Like I was very sensitive, very loving, affectionate. Yeah. And then as I aged, I was a pretty decent athlete. I was a, a very analytical student and I, it wasn't well received to be that affectionate type of guy in high school. So I became more packed in and tried to fit in with the rest of the crowd. And then as I got into my 20s and now my early 30s, I started to integrate more, but I do feel that my default is maybe feminine. Do you, do you think that's like a, a common timeline? I think there's, I think it's a common timeline and so, so is the reverse. Mm. And I think what happens is, you know, we've been talking about context. You really pick your context up when you're young. You know, it's your conditioning that you learn from usually zero to six years old mm -hmm. and around there. And I think what happens is, I think what the uh, motivating factor in that is, is typically in your, when you're young, almost whose affection did you crave most? Uh, your mom or your dad? My, my dad. Yeah, so typically what starts to happen is like, I crave this affection or this approval. And then I kind of navigate or build my worldview and my conditioning and my context around that. So now how do I receive affection, appreciation or love? And so we start to we start to build this whole world and even all these like masks and narratives around who I need to be or become in order to get. So Ours is similar, and then the complete opposite is also common as well, where you know, some people grew up in, incredibly masculine, and then later in life, they're like, okay, you know what, I, I get to soften, and I get to, to listen and be present, and so that, that's also common. You and I tend to share a similar path, but I would also say that the opposite is also uh, you know, common as well. Would you say that the opposite is someone who, for lack of a more nuanced term, is becomes the people pleaser, like someone who was kind of trying to be the, the perfect guy for their mom that their dad wasn't? Is, is that like kind of what the opposite is that you're describing? So, yeah, so there's there's ways of like if if you think of, you know, if I if I grew up in a chaotic world. A lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll uh, try to balance that out with rigidity, structure, and need to control things. Or if I grew up in an incredibly structured world that was almost like militant, there'd be, it'd be easy to balance that with like, all right, you know what, I'm just going to become the free spirit of the soul mm -hmm. and, you know, just go have no structure at all. So a lot of times we, you know, we, we look at our conditioning and we, you know, we placate to it or we, you know, reject it. And so I think a lot of that hero's journey that we talked about is actually like 
you know, recapturing a lot of our innocence and in that innocence was really our harmony and our balance. You know, and I, I say, um, I don't know if I write this in the book, but I've been saying this for years, like the, the greatest journey a man can ever make is becoming the boy he once was. Mm. You know, and that's really like that re return to our innocence and return to that balance and harmony. And then I think really have, having those two energies integrated, we become a lot more effective and harmonious to say like, okay, this right now requires masculinity and discipline and structure and organization. And this here requires spontaneity and aliveness and, and inspiration and creativity. And when you can shift between the two and dance between the two, life becomes extraordinary. Mm, it because sure does. It sure it does. It sure does. Yeah. All right. You, you brought up your book, New Man Emerging. You, there's so much wisdom in the book. And I want to go through it, just a, a few different things from there. So one that I literally have written down so that I can see it every single day. Keep your death close. Mm. What does that mean? You know, that's something that came to me when my dad died. And in the book, I, I write the, the book actually initially was I wanted to write a book about my journey with my father through his cancer and how our relationship, you know, grew and changed and improved through, you know, connecting through this disease. And I and I thought, like, oh, I'll write a book about my journey with my father. But the, you know, a year or two after that, uh, I, I kept getting this message of, uh, you know, as I watched my father pass on, like, if death were close, how would that change how I'm living? You know, because here's the thing, like this is a fate that we all share, but typically in the West, we deny it. We don't talk about it. We push it off. We procrastinate it and we act as though it's never going to happen. And yet I was, I, you know, seeing my father pass on like this, this, figure in my life that has been there from day one is now removed. Like it made me start to look at life a lot differently. And I remember thinking, well, rather than, you know, ignore this fate, what if it were close? What if death were close? How would I interact in my relationships? What would I make important and prioritize or lack thereof? What would I spend time and love and energy on? And what would I just close the door on and walk away from. If death were close, I, I would live life with a deeper sense of purpose and richness and meaning and, and depth and fulfillment. And I remember thinking like, okay, losing my father reframed so much of that for me. And it, may, it gave me a sense of deliberateness and urgency that a lot of what I was withholding, gifts and skills and talents and passions. Remember in my 20s, I spent so much of my life like withholding all that, suppressing all that. And then when my father got sick and he died, I, I remember I, I said to myself, I, I get to keep death close so that when I die, I die on empty with all my gifts given, with all my passions you know, expressed. And I looked at that as really like a new barometer or a new benchmark. And I'm not going to sit here and be scared of it. I'm not going to sit here and deny it or suppress it or procrastinate it. I'm going to live as though it's close. And if death were close, I think we would, all of us would be living a whole 
richer, deeper, more meaningful way, because I think that that death is really what gives life meaning. Mm -hmm. And I think also deeper than that is like really, you know, spirituality is really the conversation of the afterlife and death. And then what's that mean for how we live? And then in how we live, what's that mean for how we treat ourselves and treat each other and treat the world and treat the planet? And that becomes a whole different new way of, of, of perceiving and perspective. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about, yeah, you know, when you're describing that, I was thinking of, of another thing that you explained so well. You don't want to die on empty, and that is living with urgency. Mm -hmm. And the distinction between urgency and desperation. Yeah, you know, I think so many of us are living desperately, which I, which un contextually under the surface is really driven by scarcity. How do I get what I need to get? How do I maintain my survival? How do I accomplish everything? How do I, you know, control everything? And I think contextually that really comes from a place of scarcity. How do I get external in? I think of, of the way I distinguish that is urgency is I, I've being the diamond and having my own unique skill sets and gifts and talents and passions. How do I give them? How do I contribute them? How do I uh, offer them to the people in my life, to the people in my work, to the people in my culture and society in the world? And a sense of urgency is not how do I get, but how do I give? Mm -hmm. And in that, in that, relatedness of giving you know we start to realize like oh giving and receiving are actually one and the same thing that it requires you know this level of abundance to say like oh as i give i'm receiving the experience of having what it is to give that when i give power and freedom and insight and wisdom and knowledge i'm experiencing having it to give and then when it's received and then reciprocated back, you, you real, we realize that we're, we're in our relatedness, we're giving and receiving all the time. Yeah, it's, it's that difference between emotional laws and physical laws, right? Uh, physical law is if I give you something, then I, I'm not in possession anymore. You yeah. are in possession. And the emotional law is, I guess, more of a multiplier. If I give, you receive and I receive the gift of giving it, it feels correct. so good correct yeah and, that, that, and that's the challenge that we as human beings we, we we translate physical laws to emotional laws so like you said if i give you a hundred dollars you now have a hundred dollars more and i have a hundred dollars less that's a physical law but an emotional law is that if i give you love and you receive love then you now receive love and i experience having love to give which now reinforces and compounds the love between us Mm -hmm. So now it's, you know, one of the best ways I always think of it emotionally is like forgiveness. When I forgive someone for a transgression, I'm not freeing them. I'm freeing me. Mm -hmm. I'm freeing myself from th that transgression or my perspective or interpretation of that transgression. I'm not okaying them and, and advocating what they did. I'm simply freeing myself from it. And so now forgiveness doesn't you know, necessarily free the person, it frees you. And so that's an emotional law. But we think like, oh, if I give you forgiveness, now you're forgiven and I'm depleted. Like, no, you're not. You're free. <laughs> 
why do you think it is that we hold on to grudges so strongly? Like that we think that we're letting someone else off the hook if we forgive them. Yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, we're, we're a funny species. You know? <laughs> and, and so like, deep down, like we love and crave. I don't think we love, but we default to like this need to be right uh-huh. about how we see things in our worldview. And we cling to it, even though oftentimes it's not very healthy. And I think it gives us a sense of superiority. It gives us a sense of force and control and power that, you know, I, I can now hold this over you and I could weaponize it over you. But when we look at, again, going back to content, going back to results, it, it deteriorates relationships. <laughs> it deteriorates them. And it's it really, a lot of it comes from pride, you know, and I think deeper and contextually deeper is, you know, this lie that we've been sold that we're all separated. Mm. And so what separates us is really our pride. But when we really take a bird's eye view, we start to realize like we are all very interconnected. And so I always say, you know, you, you want to destroy a relationship, pride's the fastest way to do it. <laughs> and if you want a relationship that's thriving, humility is the fastest way to it. But, but I get to be right. Who cares if I destroy the relationship? I'm right. No. And then I always say, I, I've got to remind people like, okay, great. Here lies Michael. He was right. That's what <laughs> you get, man. You get a tombstone that says you were right. Meanwhile, you have all these burned bridges in your life and all the deteriorated relationships and all of these, you know, gifts not given. But all you get is a, you get a tombstone that becomes your plaque. You know, here lies Michael. He was right. You know, and it goes down, there's a lot, especially in addiction and, um, you know, recovery, you know, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? And a lot of times those are not the same thing. No. They're not. All right. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is, I mean, as people can tell from the first hour, you have so much wisdom to share. You've clearly thought deeply about yourself, about life, about our place as humanity on this planet. And yet... You have this uncanny way of not taking life so seriously. And it could be I fall into the trap of taking like learning all this stuff and making life so damn serious all the time. <laughs> and uh, I, it, I think you can have both. I know you can. Uh, you can be goofy and not take it seriously and treat this life as just uh, something to laugh at and have all this deep wisdom. Mm. How do you cultivate both so seamlessly in your life <laughs> uh, well it's a i appreciate the uh, observation i i wouldn't even have necessarily recognized it until you just said it but i think um you know srinazargadatta maharaj said it really well years and years ago he said you know uh wisdom tells me i am nothing love tells me i am everything mm-hmm. and between the two you know the river of my life flows and I think there is a harmony and a balance of, you know, this sense of urgency and purpose that I, I have this opportunity to make an impact. I have this opportunity to leave a dent in infinity. And at the same time, uh, I reconcile my complete insignificance. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think for me, I think what gives me perspective of that is I, I try to spend as much time as I can in nature, 
where you know I go, I spend my summers in Montana and in these incredible landscapes. And it, it, I love them because they remind me how insignificant I am. And yet when I'm with people and in my, my marriage and in my relationships, I'm reminded about how significant I am. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a marriage and a harmony that flows between the two. And rather than pick one or the other, really reconciling them both. And uh, my mentor, Betty Sproul, gave me a, a great barometer uh, of, you know, a way to live life by is, is live your life and play the game all out, all the while knowing it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like she used to, let me rephrase that. She used to say, play the, uh, the, play the, the game as though your life depends on it all the while knowing it doesn't. <laughs> you know, and so now I could throw myself into my work and into my endeavors and into my relationships and into everything that I do, all the while knowing like one day I'm going to become stardust again. And so there's a reconciliation between the two is like, I, I make what's important important and, all, and also I reconcile <laughs> at the end of the day, we all share the same fate. I would even, like double down on it where like sometimes we're working through, I, I have gone through coaching sessions with you where we are examining a belief of mine and it can be very, it can on the surface be something that's very serious to talk about, but then we'll end up just both laugh. Like, isn't this a ridiculous, like your belief about that is if you just look at it objectively, yes. it is ridiculous that we believe that and, and to laugh about it oftentimes is the best way to, yeah, distance yourself from it. I think it's a, it's a really uh, interesting way to examine our beliefs is to distance ourselves and laugh at it. I think I think it neutralizes it. Uh-huh. I think humor humor is a perspective. That's what humor is. It, it shows a new perspective to what we would consider ordinary or mundane. That's what comedians do. Comedians take our collective worldview and they see it from an angle or deliver it from an angle that has you go. Ha! That's it. That's what comedy is. That's what humor is. And I say all the time to my students or to my you know, people that hire me, I say, you hire me to help you highlight the absurdity of your thinking. Because mm-hmm. on our own, our bullshit makes a lot of sense. And we, we placate to it. We, we deepen it. We practice it. We exercise it for decades. So it, it becomes so ingrained in us that we're like, that's real. That belief is real. There's not enough love. There's not enough money. I'm, I'm not enough. There's not enough X, Y, or Z. So we, and then we develop a physiological response in our body, which makes it feel even more real. And then when we actually start to examine it and take like a bird's eye view of it, or a neutral view of it, we laugh because it's absurd. And in that absurdity, and that's not to like mean it's stupid, it's just absurd. Yes. It's absurd that I would think that I am this like incredible creature with such a small chance of even existing that I'm like, oh, but there's still not enough of me that this, you know, life is enough and there's not enough resource in the world for me to be happy. Like that's absurd, uh-huh. but we live that way. And so what happens is like when we examine it and, and illuminate it, all of a sudden we're like, oh my God, that, that's completely absurd. And when it, we laugh about it, the laughter gives it, it neutralizes it. It gives it a whole new way of looking at 
you know, that belief system. And then if we laugh about it enough, it's like seeing a magic trick. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you see a magic trick, you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. But then if you see like you catch an angle and you're like, oh, that's how the magician did it. You can't go back to seeing and being wowed by the old magic trick. You know how it's done now. And so as we examine our inner world and we illuminate it, you start to see the absurdity of some of the mental and emotional constructs that we've created and lived by. And all of a sudden you're like, well, that doesn't add up. Why would I ever do that? And why would I ever choose that? But that's what, that's what actually shifts the power is choice. Mm -hmm. And I, I say it to a lot of my students, first, you got to own it. You got to own that this is your context. You got to own that this is your design. And then you got to illuminate it. And then once you illuminate it, you can then alchemize it. And you can shift it and transform it into something new. But all of that requires choice. Mm -hmm. And the presence that you have a choice in the experience of your life. You choose your perspectives. You choose your perceptions. You choose your, your habits, your behaviors, your beliefs. It's like the moment I look at it, I'm the one choosing it. Now, all of a sudden, I have power and accountability and responsibility to shift it if, I, if that's what I choose. Yeah. So over the course of, of your responses, we kind of highlighted that you can't really figure this stuff out alone. And you had mentioned that there's two parts of this question that I want to go into. One is you mentioned that you have a mentor. I know you have many mentors. What are the three phases of men that we need in our life? I, you would describe it as, I guess, like the mentor, someone who's in the trenches with you and mm -hmm. someone that you are mentoring. Mm -hmm. And the, the second part of the question is, I know this is something that you talk a lot about in the book and it's so important, the, the importance of a tribe. So yeah. what, let's start with the, uh, the three phases of men that we need in our life. Yeah, there's, there's components that I think really for, for men that really bring a richness to our lives and that, that there should be levels that are filled. And by filled, I don't mean hundreds of, uh, of, you know, of people or men that are in your life, but, but they, they sh these, these roles should have attention and love in them. And the first is men that you look up to. That these are your mentors, your role models, the people that you admire, that you want to match and mirror in such a way that they've they've accomplished something that you desire to accomplish, or some someone that you look up to, uh, you know, admirably or honorably. So we always want you know mentors or elders that we look up to. Then the next level is is men that are in the trenches with you. They're at a similar season or phase of life. They share either the same struggles that you share or they share the same uh, desires or, or things that you want to accomplish in life. And you're at similar levels and phases and seasons. Like they're in it with you. You're, you're learning it together. You're experiencing it together. You're messing it up together. These are like your comrades in the trenches. And then there's also the, the next level is, you know, men that are coming up that you support that are challenged with something that you used to be challenged with and you've overcome. And I think it's very important to live a rich life is to have those spaces and levels of, of a man's life that they're filled, not exorbitantly, but that they have that someone's in each position because 
if everyone, if you only have people in the top position that you look up to, then eventually, and no one who's side by side or that you're contributing back to, eventually you start to feel like I'm just taking. Yes. But if you only have people, you know, that you support down, you know, in the third level down below and no one side by side or, or above you, you're just going to constantly feel like all I'm doing is giving and I'm exhausted. Or if people are only in the trenches with you, then life just becomes one giant competition and it's not healthy. So it's very important, I feel, that to have men in all three of those sections and levels of life, because it brings a richness to tribe and camaraderie and brotherhood that I could sit in a circle and there's men that support me, there's men that are in it with me, and there's men that I support. And I think that gives a, a, a depth to camaraderie and brotherhood. And in having a tribe is uh, so critical, especially now, because I think a lot of the conversation we, uh, around men or masculinity is, you know, you're supposed to figure all this out on your own and not make any mistakes along the way, which is such a recipe for failure and disaster that most men will either barrel through life, burn bridges and deteriorate their health or their relationships along the way on their path to success. Or the opposite of that is, you know, if I have to figure all this out on my own and not make any mistakes, let me not do anything and just remain paralyzed because at least I get a sense of, well, I didn't mess it up. And those become these two extremes that they don't work. They're, they're completely unhealthy. So first for, for men to actually have support and build brotherhood and build tribe to me is incredibly important because there's something that happens. And what happens is on our own, we think that our gifts and our skills are common and that our struggles and our challenges are unique. But when we're together in a tribe, what we start to realize is that our challenges and our, our obstacles are very common and our gifts and our skill sets are incredibly unique. <laughs> I am nodding profusely over here. He can't, it's not going to be on video, but oh my God, is that not the truest statement of all time? Because uh, you, you, we think on my own, oh, I'm the only one who's challenged with this. I'm the only one who suffers from this. I'm the only one who's going through this. And my gifts and skills, like, oh, everybody knows what I know. Everybody's able to do what I do. But then you get together and you're like, oh my God, you, you struggle with that same thing as I do? And what it does, and they, wait, I have something I can offer you and you have something you could offer me. And now we have this reciprocity of giving and receiving. And what happens is in a tribe or when we have brotherhood and community, it challenges our worldview and our, our paradigm. Mm -hmm. And it challenges those ineffective perspectives or those ineffective rooms of our paradigm and of our worldview and of our context that we're afraid to challenge because we think, well, I'm the only one that's going through this, and it's completely not true. Uh huh. So, so now we know the importance of a tribe. We can kind of highlight the different absurdities that we have in, in our life, the different belief systems that we have. And talk to me about your group that you have. I've done Find Your Tribe. I can speak to the amazing benefits of joining a group of committed men who are committed to growth. Tell me about Find Your Tribe. Find Your Tribe was 
you know, it's the chapter in my book where I talk about this, that we're having this conversation now, the importance of brotherhood. And, and so I wanted to start as a coach, I wanted to start to be able to impact, you know, more men at a time uh, in less time. Mm -hmm. And so I, I set out on to, to join, or to, excuse me, to create this uh, online course called Find Your Tribe of only eight men at a time that keeps it intimate. And it's committed men only that are, 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 you know, committed to creating clarity and confidence and freedom in their life. And I designed it as a 12 week course of the way I thought of it was if I could only be with someone for 12 weeks, what would be the 12 assignments that would be most critical? And so I designed it in such a way where each week builds upon itself. And for the first portion of the course, we, generate clarity, self-awareness. And the second portion of the course, we, we generate committed action. And so that at the end of 12 weeks, we have a, a, a blueprint, a roadmap for ourselves of how to generate fulfillment and, and uh, freedom in life. And you were, uh, I, I, when I first launched that years ago, you were, I, every one of, of the seven guys, I had known them or coached them or, you know, been their transformational trainer. You were the one guy who I had real no affiliation and connection with. And I said, uh, well, let's see how this goes. All these guys all know me. So they're, I'm kind of enrolling them off my reputation. And yet here's this straggler from up in New York. Let's see how he does. And he has no interaction with me previously. And you were a really big proponent for me personally to, to really watch you go through the 12 weeks and then see how you came out of it for me to actually say like, all right, there's something here. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was that circle started growing more and more, but you were actually the first one that dropped that uh, stone in the pond there and created that ripple. So I'm a big, uh, uh, a major appreciation for you having taken the risk and, and trusting uh, that process to go through it and, and what you've created from it, in my opinion, is, is pretty spectacular. Well, I, I really appreciate that, Mike. It was it was an honor to be one of the uh, the OGs. We called ourselves the OGs. We were the very first Finder Tribe. It's It's awesome to see that the group is still not only alive and well, but thriving and well. And... Uh, it's a really important need in the world. There's, I think there's a lot of men who, as you would put it, they're white knuckling their way through. They're trying to figure it out and doing it alone. And uh, your group is a really powerful avenue to connect with other people who feel the same way. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the other shifts that really happened in my life was you were, you were bringing up how a lot of times when we're stuck alone, we don't see that we think differently or have gifts and that our problems are kind of unique and we're uniquely flawed. And I would even extend that into like our groups. Like I, my, you've talked about the Northeast drift. A lot of my group of friends, we all have the same struggle. And so it's not only a self thing, it's like an entire uh, area. We, we're all having that issue and find your tribe allowed me to connect with people from different demographics and really start to see the world, different ages, different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. I have mostly been surrounded my whole life with other white men, 
mm-hmm. other white people who have uh, similar, I, I guess, value systems and were raised in a similar way. And to see the world from other lenses allows me to see the world differently through my own lens. And that's another beautiful gift that your uh, that your course and group coaching has given. I appreciate that. There was one one group not long ago where it spanned from one guy was in Australia, one guy was in Bulgaria, one guy was in Mexico, and one guy was in California, and then everyone else was sprinkled in between. And I remember thinking, how the hell are we going to come up with a time to, to get, get all these guys connected? And yet they made it work. Mm-hmm. And it gave different, like you said, it gave different viewpoints, worldviews, perspectives, and the guys still connect and talk today. You know, So I, I that's part of what I appreciate about that course is that from my perspective, when I put it together, I thought, okay, here's the 12 assignments that I think every man should do. And what I didn't know was going to happen was the magic that was going to actually happen between the interactions with the men that were in the group, which has become such a gift and the way that they connect and, uh, and, and support each other to me is, uh, it's so fulfilling. And uh, it's just, to me, it's incredible. Well, and another thing that you didn't really, you, you kind of started with, uh, I'll call it awareness that we build at first, like we start to become aware of the patterns that we have, and then committed action is phase two. And another beautiful element of it is that we start to have a more clear vision as well, which is where I don't know if that would necessarily be phase three, but we are able to start crafting the vision of the world of ourselves that we want to create. Yeah. And that has been instrumental in me continuing. I, I don't know if I'd have the courage to have this podcast right now if it weren't for something like that, where I actually put it down on paper, like I want this podcast. And now uh, it was something that I had to look at and now I've made it happen. So it's uh, it's a testament to how powerful that, that program is. It's really beautiful. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I could talk about your work and I could talk with you forever, but we're running a little bit low on time. So I, I did write down a few, I categorize them as rapid fire questions. And okay. I mean, knowing, knowing me, as I'm looking at these, I think you can have long answers. So maybe they're not so rapid fire, but nonetheless, they're questions I wanted to ask you. Sure. What books have you either gifted the most or have been the most influential on your life? Besides your own, the the uh, the uh, the Tao Te Ching, mm-hmm. uh, conversations with God, and let me throw in another one. How about how about uh, well, let me throw in a couple more. Way of the Peaceful Warrior, The Alchemist, and um, the Four Agreements. I just finished reading the Four Agreements, and oh, I. Okay. I think I realized as I was reading this that oh, I, I could see where uh, where Michael's getting a lot of his stuff from, huh? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, especially in integrity and, and being your word and keeping your promises. That's that's big. Yeah, yeah. being impeccable with your word. Definitely uh, an agreement that I am making in my life right now, and I'm I'm breaking the old agreement of people pleasing and doing what others <laughs> think I should do for approval. Good. Okay. What is something that I, I was very excited to ask you this question. What's something that people get wrong about you or that don't, people don't know about you? Hmm. There was, 
there was a time when I remember people thinking, you know, you were talking about like growing up in the Northeast and, you know, like Northeast Italian, you know, a lot of times people were like, when I, especially when I moved and traveled a lot to lived in Montana, lived in Florida, the people were intimidated by me. And then when they got to know me, they're like, oh my God, you are just a teddy bear. And you could really, like you were saying before, like you just are a free spirit that really, uh, you know, could just kind of enjoys life to the fullest. But I think initially, uh, more more years ago, people were, uh, I was, when I was a little more, you know, stoic and standoff, people were intimidated by me. But when they got to know me, they realized, I, well, I would, all I, if I could just tell jokes and laugh all day, that would probably be my, my, <laughs> my absolute uh, best day. Was that, do you think that was a manifestation of like, was it shyness on your end or like being reserved or was it more just your overall demeanor? I think I, you know, I grew up shy and I, I think I was shy. People, you know, some my par uh, parents may disagree with that, but yeah, I was, I didn't have a lot of confidence. I was shy. I, I didn't like being the center of attention, hated the spotlight. And I was, I was reserved growing up. My brothers took up a lot of the energy in the room and I, I made peace with the, being the youngest of three boys, kind of, you know, figuring out things on my own, raising myself a little bit, I'll figure it out. Uh -huh. And then it just became kind of part of my act uh, and my identity. And then, uh, but as I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot more lighthearted and uh, mm -hmm. affectionate again and, and uh, really easygoing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to your 30 year old self? My 30-year-old self, well, so let's see, my 30-year-old self, um, stay the course. Uh-huh. Yeah, stay the course and trust. And I think what, that-, that What would, was that, your 30-year-old self struggling with most? Well, I, uh, when I was in my 30-year-old uh, my self, I was, you know, right around, that's when going back to, you know, leaving that old job and, and starting my own business and my own coaching practice. So it was similar to, you know, you're, you know, I think you can relate where you're at, right? Is, uh, is me telling you like, stay the course, trust yourself, trust the process and enjoy it as much as you can and, and take it in. And, uh, and really like, that's what I, I would, this, what I would tell my 30 year old self is what I would tell you. Mm -hmm. be courageous trust yourself stay the course the best is yet to come amen to that all right what is the best leadership advice you've ever received and or the worst leadership advice you've ever received <laughs> um best leadership advice listen more talk less uh -huh. uh, worst leadership advice is would probably be, uh, you know, leave, you know, something along the lines of like, leave them behind. If they don't catch up, they don't catch up. Uh, that, that's not my style. Uh -huh. yeah. I think the best advice you received was, was probably a big realization for both of us in our lives as people who didn't naturally love to be the center of attention. And I've spoken to you about this, how I thought that a leader had to be gregarious, loud, front of the room type of big yeah. personality that's so conditioned in our culture. And the most powerful leaders 
are the ones who can really see and listen and, and hear yeah. others and have this, uh, it doesn't have to be understated. It doesn't have to manifest that way, but it could be a, like a humility is more yeah. the word I'm looking for. Humility yeah. and uh, like, this isn't about me. It's kind of just coming through me. I'm just carrying out what is coming through me. So yeah. that's, yeah. yeah that, I, think it, I think it's easy to lead with a megaphone, but I think it's effective to lead with a whisper. Love that. One of the many quotables from this episode. Okay. And then I, I have a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. This one, I'm, I'm curious to see if you, if you have something, but if you were to construct your life around one belief or one mantra, what would it be? There's enough. There is enough. Mm. I'm going to sit with that one for a second. There <laughs> is enough. It's enough. so simple. Yeah. And so not lived out by America. <laughs> There's enough. Imagine seeing an advertisement for that on television. Right? Crazy. Every single advertisement is just a, a flashing at us. There isn't <laughs> enough. You're not enough. <laughs> enough. There's enough love. There's enough resource. There's enough time. There's enough affection. There's enough for everyone. There's enough for you. There's enough for me. There's enough. Mm-hmm. And I think when we shift into that collectively, we'll create a whole new paradigm. Yes. Okay. So my, the final question that I wanted to ask you, well, before that, and this, this might be a funny question to ask you knowing your relationship with uh, the digital world, but where can, <laughs> where can people connect with you online or where can people connect with you in general? Uh, the, the, you can connect with me at uh, michaeldesanti.com or uh, on Instagram at Mike underscore DeSanti. And I think Facebook is filled up. So that's probably not the best way to find me. So those two uh, are the best ways to find me. You can contact me via my website, michaeldesanti.com or newmanemerging.com or uh, find me on Instagram, Mike underscore DeSanti. Yes. So I, I will link to all of that in my show notes. I'll link to the books that we read or any relevant resources that we discussed. And uh, the last question that I wanted to ask you, that you know, my, my podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. How would you define a meaningful life? I would, similar to, I think it was Plato who said, uh, you know, the um, one that is uh, inspired by love and guided by wisdom. That's mm. to me. That's a, a life worth living. Mike DeSanti, thank you so much for coming on the show. It it delivered the goods as anticipated. <laughs> uh, it's it's always so much fun to talk to you, to learn from you. It's it's been an honor to be coached by you and mentored by you. And now, like I said, this was this was really a dream come true to have you on the podcast and for me to kind of just ask you a couple of questions, sit back, shut up and listen to your powerful, powerful wisdom. Oh, Thank you so I, much for the, I for the work. Yeah. And, and, and our time together and uh, you are appreciated more than you know. Well, that it really means a lot to me. And uh, yeah, thank you so much again for the work that you do for the, for the person and man that you are and for taking the time to talk to me. It's, uh, you're a beautiful man. What can I say?
my pleasure, brother. Keep it up. I'm proud of you. And like I said, stay the course and the best is yet to come. Love you, bro. Sounds good, Mike. Love you too. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.